my name is Josh. I'm Jamie. And I'm Ian. And welcome to A Conversation with Two Geeks, the podcast where we talk about movies, comics, and every in, everything in between. Today, we'll be talking about everything from the recent 2021 delays, film delays, to Doctor Strange joining the cast of Spider-Man 3. Also, on today's episode, we have our first ever guest, Ian Martin, no relation. Um, he is the creator of the YouTube channel Passion the Nerd, where he dissects every episode of Buffy Vampire Slayer and Angel and Firefly. And afterwards, I will be doing a one-on-one interview, so keep a lookout for that. Anyway, make sure to follow us on our social media at Twitter at, at a combo with two geeks, Instagram at a conversation with two geeks, and on Facebook. You can also find our back catalog on Spotify, Anchor, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and wherever podcasts are sold. How is everyone doing today? Good. Good. Excellent. I took the day off, so nice and relaxed. Happy to be here. Yes. Nice. That is that is super nice. That is super nice. So yeah. Anyways, to our first topic, every mm-hmm. everything's delayed again. Yep. Uh, damn you, Corona. So the first delay that we will be talking about is. Um, so Denise Villeneuve, who did Blade Runner uh, 2049 and Arrival, he's going to be doing a new Dune movie. That just got pushed from December 18th of this year to October 21st, which has also resulted in the new Batteries Batman movie being pushed from that release date to March 4th of 2022. And then all the other DC feature release dates, such as Andy Muschietti's, um, he did it. Um, the Flash movie being pushed to November 4th, 2022, instead of June 3rd, twenty. 22. Uh, David Sandberg Shazam 2 will now be opening on June 2nd, 2023 in lieu of uh, November 4th, 2022. While Black Adam, well, Dwayne Johnson's Black Adam movie will be just taken off the 2021 slate entirely. The only thing that got pushed up was the Matrix 4, which is now going to be released in December instead of April uh, April of 2022. So, Yeah. Lots of Moving and shuffling and not surprising because of what's going on. Yeah. So. And also, like, Toon was my fa- my most anticipated movie of the year. So, What did you think of the trailer? <sighs> that trailer was fucking beautiful. <laughs> just, I, I just, it, yeah, I know. It's just... Denise uh, loves pretty much my um, favorite director currently working. I've made it a point to show Arrival to uh anyone that i can get to sit still and watch it i love mm-hmm. that uh, probably one of my favorite movies in the last 10 years along with into the spider-verse mm-hmm. my only problem with the trailer and i'm not um the biggest dune fan was it felt a little bit like the blade runner 2049 trailer or was that just me did it feel too si- similar to Sammy or? I mean, no. maybe. I mean, I. It's been a while since I, I'm, I'm going to be completely honest. It's been a while since I've seen that trailer. Mm-hmm. So I, mm, it, mm, you, you bring up a good point because, it, it, yeah, it's been a while. So it's like, I, I kind of see where I kind of see where you're coming from because it did feel a little bit like that. But then again, at the same time, I, I don't know. I was just because again, I'm. Like really excited for just for another Denise Villeneuve new movie, and it's just yeah. insanely beautiful and just yeah. Pardon also, me, having, uh, go ahead. Uh, yeah, sorry. Yeah, sorry about that. Um, also, having Eclipse um, by Pink Floyd or at least a cover of it. Sure. Yeah, I mean, it was a beautiful trailer. It was uh, mm-hmm. incredibly well edited, and I love his stuff. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I think the only one that I haven't seen is Prisoners, and then his um, French Canadian films uh, yeah. early on, which are uh, Jack and I are doing. Jack is uh, my co-host for the podcast of the Nerds, mm-hmm. and um, we do a once a week. Um, List of Shame project, all the movies we should have seen. We just watched uh, Rebel Without a Cause uh, mm. this week. And mm-hmm. um, the Denise uh, French-Canadian films are on the list, but I haven't uh, hit them just yet. I don't know. It's it's uh, Criticizing a trailer is, I mean, it's not really fair. And then yeah. uh, based on critique, Suicide Squad would have been an amazing movie uh, based purely yeah. on critique of the, that, that movie had an awesome trailer. Uh, but I just, it just was, I, you know, I, I get so excited for his stuff. I felt a little mm-hmm. weird about the sameness. And the other thing is I really love Jason Momoa, mm-hmm. but I also only see Jason Momoa when, mm-hmm. you know, like when you go to Aqua, which is fine in, in the context of a superhero film where everyone is kind of a personality, um, mm-hmm. You know, I always see Robert Downey Jr. because Robert Downey Jr. is Tony Stark. He's the sort of the epitomization yeah. of that character. But within a um, plotty, character-driven science fiction uh, epic, I, I just kept mm-hmm. I just kept seeing Jason Momoa in all those bits. Um, mm-hmm. Anyway, a bit of a weird hang-up. Sorry, I didn't mean to. It, it's it's okay, and yeah. I really and I feel I'm, it was interesting as well. I'm actually currently reading the book. <laughs> I'm about like I think 200 something pages in right now, and I can kind of see that, but then also like I can sort of see how he might adapt to the role. It's one of those things where you kind of just can't tell from a trailer. Yeah, well, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, you know, um, that's the nature of being fans. Is mm-hmm. uh, uh, we were going to be pour over every little bit of uh, drip and drab that we're given, um, but yeah, and, and I'm completely open to. And definitely going to go see the film, regardless. It was just those yeah. were the the couple of feelings that came up for me when uh, when I watched it. Uh, yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah, I'm totally. Yeah, I'm. Yeah, I'm. I'm the same way. Like I like pandemic or not, I'm seeing this movie. Yeah. But you know, it's we're now just gonna have to wait till October. Which, on one hand, I'm as much as I am a little bit sad about it. It does allow Denise to you know finish the. Mo- like have all the time in the world to finish the movie because yeah. apparently a couple of weeks ago there was a report saying that Denise kind of felt rushed because of the December mm-hmm. release date. So, oh, okay. so on one hand, I'm just like allow Denise to like make the best movie he can. Yeah, that's a weird mm-hmm. um, byproduct, uh, you know, a positive byproduct of something like this, I suppose. Other than the mm-hmm. extreme jeopardy to the movie industry, but. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, um, yeah. And speaking of that, we also have another big delay. But then this one is actually considering a movie that's in production right now. Um, mm-hmm. So Jurassic World Three, uh, Jurassic World Dominion, is being pushed back from its June eleventh, twenty twenty one release date to June to a full year to June tenth, twenty twenty one. According to Deadline, where this is sourced, uh, this has nothing to do with the production, which is about three weeks from wrapping in the UK and has remained on course despite some positive COVID-19 tests from the crew. Rather, it's about safeguarding a big temple, which has lucrative ancillary attachments. After all, the Jurassic Park franchise has grossed $5 billion worldwide. Jesus Christ. Um, things need to go off for Dominion without a hitch. The IP stretches 
across the NBC Universal portfolio in their theme parks, TV animation, consumer products, live events, and more. In addition, retail partners and media placement also need to be locked up. So, yeah. Yeah, so, and I have a feeling that that's, that, that whole thing is probably also why a lot of the stuff that we mentioned beforehand is probably getting pushed. Yeah. Is it bad that I forgot they were making another Jurassic World movie? <laughs> you know, it isn't. It isn't. I, I, I'm going to be honest with you. I have been following this franchise since um, really Jurassic World. Like, I thought after that movie, I was mm-hmm. like, okay, they're done. They're done. And then we just got Fallen Kingdom, which... Uh, mm-hmm. uh, the first one was fun. The second one was not that great, yeah. in my opinion. Yeah. But. And I... Yeah, and, and it sucks because they have actually... But the second one, they actually had a good director. They just had a horrible script. Yeah. Anyways, yeah. To continue on, um, mm-hmm. Soul, which is Disney pick, which is the new Disney Pixar movie, um, they are moving to Christmas. Mm-hmm. Um, Disney has elected to move Soul to Disney Plus, where it'll be released on December twenty fifth, Christmas Day. And unlike with Mulan, it will not be under a paywall. That was so bizarre what they did. The yeah. um buy to temporarily own something that's going to be on the service uh, in three months anyway. Uh, mm-hmm. A system they set up for Milan was essentially you're paying $30 for early access mm-hmm. uh, to see it, which was fine. But the, uh, the rules that they set up for um, the purchase structure were just bizarre. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they were. And it's, and it's, um, yeah, and I, I imagine that's probably the reason why they're probably not doing this again. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. it's just like, yeah, no, we, we got a lot of shit over that, so. It would have been better if, like, the price wasn't $30 oh, hell yeah. to rent it, rent it for, like, three months, and then it's on the platform right. anyway. Like, if it was, like, $5 or $10, mm-hmm. that probably would have been more palatable. Well, mm-hmm. depending on whether they vault it or not. I mean, I suppose if they vault the live-action version later on down the line. Um, but you get access to the the digital version that you paid for. Okay, I guess. But yeah. who's, you know... I understand how the it's, vault worked for Beauty and the Beast and uh, mm-hmm. Aladdin and all of that, but who is going to be shitting a tear about Milan? Uh, uh, yeah. the li- pardon me, the live-action version of Milan going into the Disney vault for a while. Just a strange thing. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah and yeah, it's it's definitely interesting. And uh, and honestly, when you kind of remind me of vault, you kind of remind me of like nostalgic memories of. Like, yeah, exactly. That was a thing for a long time. Yeah. You can now buy The Little Mermaid, which you haven't been able to buy for five years. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 But yeah, it's, it's it's interesting. And then um, continuing on with our streaming to talk, um, Patty Jenkins, um, the director of Wonder Woman 1984, talked about the future of the industry and the warning of actual brick and mortar theaters potentially going extinct. Uh, she said in interviews with Reuters, if we shut this down, this will not be a reversible process. We can lose movie going forever. And then it could be like the kind of thing that happens to the music industry where you crumple the entire industry by making something that can't be profitable. I don't think any of us want to live in a world where the only option is to take your kids to watch a movie in your living own living room and may not have a place to go for a date, which 
yeah okay yeah i i can relate to that yeah. so she has a young 20 something year old <laughs> i i yeah. really hope i asked for the release of wonder Woman 1984 i really hope that we are the able to be the one the first one to come back and bring that into everyone's life and according to a tweet uh direct streaming mm-hmm. is not even being discussed they're 100 percent behind the theatrical experience and supporting our beloved movie theaters and this is the only movie that is so far not as of this recording has not been delayed um i also saw a tweet where um i think it was from patty jenkins herself her twitter account where she said that the movie could be in theaters and on streaming at the same time. You know, I heard something about but that as well. Um, mm. I should have grabbed that, but um, I totally forgot about it. But I saw that too, which could also be a option. I just don't know. I Like I've said a couple of times, is these are big movies with big budgets, so they kind of need like the theater-going experience to kind of make back their mm-hmm. money. In a way, because they're gonna lose money regardless if they stay on stream. Oh yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's 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 a whole thing, and yeah, because mm-hmm. it's just like, okay, do we release this in theaters or do we just like just put it on streaming? And I imagine studios are probably like making very tough calls, being like, okay, what mm-hmm. the fuck do we do? Because um, yeah. and it also depends on like what the access to movie theaters are gonna be open because. As of right now, with the exception of probably New York and I think a few other states, movie theaters are back open. And just curious, but are movie theaters back open where you live? No, uh, I live in Colorado, which is, um, as far as I know, sticking to uh, pretty rigorous um, restrictions. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Jamie and I are in California, and um, the theaters have slowly started to reopen. I think a few chains, including Cinemark, have reopened, but Regal is closed, and that's a whole thing, and yeah. <laughs> yeah, those are the theaters I have near me, and um, as far as I can tell from last time I went out, they're not open, so. Yeah, theater closed. Yeah. Please check back soon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and as a, theater, as a, as a theater-goer myself, this, is, this has been rough. Yeah. Not it has. Um, <laughs> it it's just it's very interesting to see what they're the, seeing what they want to do with this whole situation because it's totally a new situation that I don't think a lot of theaters and um, movie productions have had to deal with. So it's just interesting. Yeah, yeah. Well, and once the outlets start dying off, um, which has already begun to happen, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. The structure, as Patty talked about in that quote, is just going to need to be altered and changed completely at that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I'm just trying to theorize, okay, what is that structure going to look like? Like, are mm-hmm. we still going to get the brick and mortar theaters, or are we going to have condensed theaters, or is it going to be like the drive-in? So, um, I live mm-hmm. close to Denver. Everything in Denver is closed. Um, but, uh, a couple of exits down the road, we've got uh-huh. a couple of open theaters, but I don't recognize the names of anything playing except tenant. Mm-hmm. Uh, the uh-huh. war with grandpa. Uh, yeah. I- oh, here. I recognize some things. Hocus Pocus, <laughs> Shrek, Coco, 
Empire Strikes okay. Back, Annabelle. So they are filling uh, up the empty screens with content. Um, uh, whoever owns the AMC has access to. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Oh, okay. That's cute. Yeah. It's not a bad selection, but also it's not a bad selection. But also, how far? I don't know. I, I have a question. I have a main question: like, how long can you keep reusing content without giving anyone like new releases? Well, especially stuff that you could see on Netflix. Um, yeah. I mean, RP. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I'm sure I enjoy the theater experience for things like, you know, uh, the big tentpole MCU movies and so forth. But are you going to drive to go and see Empire Strikes Back? Well, that's a bad example because you might do that. But uh, <laughs> Shrek for yeah. the 30th time um, and to spend $20 on popcorn? I, I don't know. Uh, I mean, they're, no one knows what they're doing. You're talking about a once-in-a-century uh, pandemic. So everyone is just trying to come up with strategies to um, get through this, and this is one of them. You, you can definitely say that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, it, it's definitely like everyone's just – I think everyone, you know, I think everyone's just trying to do the best they can. Yeah, of course. To get through yeah. this, like, quarantine apocalyptic nightmare. Yeah. Anyways, moving on from you know depressing stuff, <laughs> um, we got okay. This was the weirdest thing I saw today, and I'm just like, okay, all right. Kind of surprised it didn't this didn't happen like ten years ago, but okay. Um, we're getting a Space Mountain movie, like based on the ride from Disney. Yes. Yes. And it's okay. from That's... the Hollywood Reporter. Disney will be turning one of its most famous roller coaster. Um, rides into a movie with the studio hiring Joby Harold, who has worked on a range of movies from Zack Snyder's upcoming Army of Dead to Warner's King Arthur Legend of the Sword to write the script. Ooh. Yeah. Uh, that, uh, I, yeah, no, I just... How do you make a movie out of Space Mountain? That's how I'm trying to figure out. Well... That... Oh, go ahead. I mean, it, this kind of thing is never going to sound... Like a good idea, ever. But Pirates of the Caribbean exists. The Lego movie exists. I mean, mm-hmm. um, uh, you hear the title Lego movie and wonder what the heck they're going to make an entire movie about with Legos. And then you saw, I saw the movie and it was from the writers of Into the Spider-Verse. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, adorable. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it... It's. I think it's never going to not be a bizarre concept, but uh, it'll be good. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. I mean, I. I mean, the writer they got attached um, has some sketchy credits. I mean, King Arthur. Oh boy. I don't know if you saw it in theaters. No, or I did not. not. But, yeah. Oh uh, yeah. I, I. I. I didn't. But I heard some. Oh god. I think that's. Too, I think that movie lost like Warner's like a lot of money. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anyways, also speaking of, well, not really the Lego movie, but Lego Batman movie. Um, so we got so for the new HBO Max Green Lantern series, we finally got our showrunner, and it's Seth Graham Green. Um, or Seth Graham Smith. Mm-hmm. I think it's Seth Graham Smith. Uh, yeah, it, it's Seth Graham yeah. Smith. I apologize. Um, he will be the showrunner on the, uh, he will be the showrunner on the show, which will be premiere on HBO Max along with um, Mark Guggenheim, who 
you, you who Jamie and I, uh, you you know, we have we have mm-hmm. a weird relationship with because you know we're Arrowverse, we're Arrowverse fans. So yeah, um, it's yeah, you you go going, Sorry, I don't like it's Mark Guggenheim. I think as long as he's not too, like as long as Seth Graham um, Seth has like main control, I mm-hmm. think he'll be fine. Because Guggenheim is good at setting up stuff, but he kind of loses it like when he like in TV when he's like having to be consistent. Mm-hmm. I think. Um, so it'll be interesting. I, it's just, it. I don't know. That's my thoughts. Is it's just gonna be interesting, and hopefully it 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 stays good. I I just that's all I can really say is. It hopefully doesn't go like yeah 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 okay. I'm 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 really hoping that as well and apparently the premise is going to be the drama will depict the adventures of multiple lanterns including Guy Gardner Jessica Cruz Simon Bass and Alan Scott the first Green Lantern and it's also going to have Sinestro and Kilwog which means everyone's mm-hmm. going to be in this but Hal Jordan and John Stewart which makes sense because they probably want to save them for the movies if they end up mm-hmm. doing a movie. And then this way that these guys still get exposure on screen, um, but just in like mm-hmm. TV form. So. Yeah, yeah. No, this this is going to be interesting. A release date has been given yet. They're probably not going to start production until twenty twenty two. Yeah. Anyways, yeah. moving on to our next topic: Swamp Things that hit on the CW. So after being canceled by streaming service DC Universe before the debut season even had a chance to air, uh, Swamp Thing has been given life over at the CW at this Halloween season with the Necro premiering this um, series past Tuesday, and it's been a hit with like 1.11 um, million viewers. And because of the success, according to um, industry insider Mike, Mikey Sutton, um, there's a possibility that this show could be revived on the CW. I didn't even know this had aired back over on the CW. Like, I didn't even realize that that happened. But good for them, because I've heard mm-hmm. good things about it. You know, like, and people were who watched it were kind of bummed it got yeah. canceled. And also, yeah. um, it might have a Matt Ryan's John Constantine if it gets revived. Oh jeez, that's yeah, that's cool. Yeah, I'm, I'm really curious because you know Constantine debuted in Swamp Thing, so it's like, <laughs> yeah. And now <laughs> for our main topic of the day, Doctor Strange joins Spider Man Three. According to an exclusive article from The Hollywood Reporter, Benedict Cumberbatch, Doctor Strange, will be joining the cast of Spider-Man 3, which is set to start shooting next week in New York. This move puts Cumberbatch in the supporting mentor role that was previously occupied by R.E.J. Tony Stark and in Homecoming and Samuel Jackson's Nick Fury in Far From Home. It also raises a ton of theories about how Electro, Jamie Foxx's Electro will be in the movie, since the movie following this will be Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. But here's the thing. So I don't think the multiverse, as soon as this news got announced, like everyone started claiming, oh, this is the confirmation about multiverse. I don't think that this is going to be the case. I don't think it's going to be as big as people people um, say it's going to be. And this is coming from um, the same insight, the same insider, Mikey Sutton. Um, so McGuire, so I actually have heard some potential spoilers for Spider-Man 3. 
Um, Maguire and Garfield are being discussed to appear in the final scene of Spider-Man 3. Each of the MCU movies, um, MCU Spider-Man movies had drop, drop, drop ending, whether it be, um, whether it be, um, Aunt May learning about Spidey's identity, um, Peter's identity, and, or Peter Parker essentially getting his identity revealed to the entire world. Um, Mm -hmm. my theory is that, um, that the final scene is going to be him meeting Maguire and Garfield for the first time. And heck, you know that concept, you know that thing, that post that Jamie Foxx um, deleted? Um, yeah, that yes. I think was probably the big signal. So while I do think Spider-Verse is coming, I don't think it's going to be the third movie, whether I think it's going to be the fourth movie. Hmm. So. That's so interesting. Yeah, it's, it, it's a whole thing, and I'm... And also, I know a lot of people have some concern about how much Strange will be in the movie. I think it's just going to be the same amount of time that Stark and Fury were in the previous two movies, or the length of his cameo in Thor Ragnarok, which was a pretty quick cameo, in my personal opinion. But it's interesting yeah. it, the um, number of times they—I mean, the Andrew—I didn't watch any of the Andrew Garfield stuff. Was it any good? Eh, the first one was okay. He—he's a good. Spidey, not as good as a Peter. Like Tom Holland is like the perfect. Well, there's of like Peter and Spidey, like because Spidey always has that personality when he's in the. Yeah, suit the interesting thing about the character stuff. is that um, you've got high school Peter Parker, you've got graduated Peter Parker, and then you have adult Peter Parker, and it kind of takes a different. Mm-hmm. Um, performance to play each one of them. To me, Maguire was uh, better as a graduated or maybe early adulthood uh, Peter Parker, and the but um, mm-hmm. what's his name? Current Peter um, Holland. Holland. Holland is by far the best oh. high school Peter Parker uh, uh, by a long shot. Yeah, but it's interesting to me that that. Um, you know, they redid Uncle Ben, I, I heard, with the Andrew Garfield version again. Yeah, they um, did. Uh, and then mm-hmm. the in after signing the deal with Marvel to do the uh, MCU version, which or uh, collaboration, and then I'm not sure how that contract or that works out. You know, that little movie Into the Spider-Verse comes along, and they're like, well, fine, and we'll do this little animated film on the side. And it's spectacular. Mm-hmm. And they kind of go... Oh, and this to me, the multiverse yeah. uh, stuff to me smacks of, wait, that worked? Well, what if we do that in the live action version? But I mean, maybe that's too cynical. I I don't think you're... Yeah, I don't think you're off at all either. There is a part of me that does feel like that, but I, it's weird. It, it's weird because you... Because Feige did have this the mastermind that Feige hits. I mean, he has plans up up until like twenty twenty eight. So, I mean, this could be all part of the plan. I'm I'm not a hundred percent sure. I I think that people would love to see like all the Peters interacting, and then like in live action, because um, everybody kind of has their favorite of who they like. And stuff, and I think people just really like that dynamic. Um, and yeah, with the success of Into the Spider Verse, people really like that movie. Like, 
really good movie. And so I'm not surprised that they're wanting to try it in live action if this is what's happening. I was just looking so. up what Toby Maguire has been up to. Uh, and he's been going kind of light. The last movie I recognized was Brothers in 2009. And then he was doing a couple movies a year before that. Um, hmm. yeah, the last, the last movie I think I saw him in was The Great Gatsby with Leo. Yeah, that was, um, Baz Lerman. That was a oh, while ago. Yeah. Oh, 2013. Yeah, that was one of his. Um, seems like that was one of his last big prod- projects, and I haven't heard of any of the ones since, other than Boss Baby, which I live with a two uh, year old. Uh, she <laughs> loves it. I, just, I, 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 you, you have my sympathies. Again. Yeah. You have my, you have, you have my sympathies. I just close my eyes and go to my happy place. <laughs> <laughs> yeah no yeah no um yeah no i was i had avoided boss baby so i was kind of surprised when i looked at his imdb page earlier and i saw that he was the narrator yeah yeah i mean i i think i've i don't know she's watched that movie uh maybe 40 times and i think that i registered once in my head is that toby McGuire? and then i went back to my happy place <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, I, That's funny. I don't blame you. I don't blame you, dude. <laughs> Just, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, no. This is. I think this is gonna be interesting, and I, you know, I, you know, I do hope that they're able to kind of balance it with you know the stuff that was left off from the last movie because, oh boy, is Peter in some shit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, there's yeah. a lot that happened. But Feige so far hasn't let us down. So in Feige and what we trust. I think he was yeah. the only one with it. Was he the only Avenger with a secret identity? Identity. Everyone knew Tony. Everyone knew Cap. Mm-hmm. Natasha, maybe. Natasha, I think so. Yeah. Because I think her identity. I think she revealed her identity at the end of Winter Soldier. Yeah, that's right. Uh, with the information dump, and Thor doesn't care, obviously. Oh, yeah. So mm-hmm. yeah, it, I mean, within the MCU. Um, Secret identities are less of a thing. And as mm-hmm. I understand it, that was partially a decision uh, made early on that they didn't want to use masks as much because they wanted to see the performers' faces and they were paying for, you know, uh, Robert Downey Jr. <laughs> <laughs> so um, within the MCU... Um, it may be less of a course correction than you would think. I mean, if you've got a trillionaire as your best buddy, you're going to be fine. Yeah. I just just relocate Aunt May, put her on the uh, Avengers compound. All's well with the world. Yeah. I mean, there is that. I'm also just thinking like, but then how do you fix your own identity? Because now everyone thinks you're like, uh, I I don't want to use this name, but, like uh well actually no um I was gonna say Jeffrey Dahmer but then Jeffrey Dahmer's like what the fuck what are you talking about because of what Jay Jonas said about him yes yeah. which I have a whole theory about that so that one I think with the new performance that J.K. Simmons um is gonna be giving I think he's gonna be less of a you you know how in the original Tobey Maguire Sam Raimi movies he was kind of like like very like like to his employees he was kind of like a very like absolutely like boss but then like secretly like he actually had a heart of gold mm-hmm. 
I don't think we're going to get that. I think he's going to be an antagonist for like the first movie for like the first time we see him. Cause, and cause um, in the comics, uh, in the comics, he puts a bounty on Spidey. Interesting. Like a $60,000 bounty on Spidey. And I have a mm-hmm. feeling that um, Scorpion's going to be coming. That I think some people are going to be coming to collect, which not going to lie, kind of gives me John Wick chapter three, five. Mm. Yeah, that's true. I don't, yeah. I don't know. Um, it's definitely interesting. They're definitely going in an interesting direction with the Spider-Man yeah. movies. Yeah. So again, we'll just have to wait. And, we'll have to wait and see. But yeah. Anyways, um, so now we get into my recommendations, which unfortunately I do not have any, um, this week. I, I, but I will have some next week. Um, specifically three movies, two of which star <laughs> the same actor in it. Okay. And yeah, so that's that's gonna be okay. interesting. Um, Ian, do you have any recommendations? Um. No, I've been uh, um, don't watch Rebel Without a Cause. I recommend that you don't. I don't think it ho- I don't think it holds up particularly <laughs> well. Um, even though I get why um, people love it, but the um, um, I've been playing a fair number of games lately. Oh, cool. um, the uh, mm-hmm. the Xbox Pass, which is kind of an absurd deal has uh one of my favorite features built into the app on the computer hmm. i'm not a i'm not a big fan of making decisions uh <laughs> i like to defer as many of my decisions as possible to the internet and if there were a button to say what am i eating for dinner today i would push it and just let um i get decision fatigue very easily <laughs> so within the xbox app there's a what am i playing button and you push it and it pulls a random game <laughs> from the entire collection uh, on the Xbox Pass. Hmm. And I pushed that for an evening and just played 20 minutes of whatever it suggested and landed on a game called Spirit Fairer that I had never heard of. Hmm. Um, it's on the PS4, oh. Xbox, uh, uh, PlayStation. But you open with... it's. Uh, it has this very nice um, hand-animated... Um, two-dimensional side-scroller look to it. Mm-hmm. And it opens with um, the boatman on the river sticks giving you his spirit power and saying he needs to take a break. And you're uh, a little girl with a giant flower hat and a cat. <laughs> and you sail around the river sticks to all these little islands picking up spirits. And the spirits come on board and they look um, like animals of some kind. You have a frog and a a deer and all of that. But they have very human stories about grief with their family or things that they went through or all of this. And in the meantime, they're residents on your boat. So you have to build them little homes and you have to collect resources to... Um, build food or uh, uh, grow food that the, and cook food that they're going to enjoy and so forth. And you're basically um, catering to them and questing to them um, until they are ready to pass into the afterlife. And then you take them to the door. Um, I don't know if anyone watched The Good Place, but... Oh, uh, yes, yes, yes. We, we are the, of it. Uh, and, oh God. Yeah, the, the themes in this adorable little video game that was hand animated and has some beautiful and terrific music you know you'll be taking a deer uh in a canoe down the river sticks to the door and she's reflecting on her life and the grief that she suffered and the things that she went through but but finding catharsis and she's ready to go and i'm weeping at this random (laughs) 
Xbox game that I pulled off of the Xbox Pass um, over this deer in the, and I'm a little girl in a canoe, but uh, the, you know, there's uh, one of them, uh, one of the characters related. I don't want to spoil too much because all of the stories are very fun to discover. But one of the the um, one of the animals uh, was an art dealer in a previous life or in his life, and as as your um, he has a wonderful monologue about um, the importance of art in a meaningless universe, which uh, if you, uh, you know, if anyone has seen my channel, which uh, that's a little in my wheelhouse, a little close to home in terms of the themes that I discuss with uh, Buffy and Angel. But again, it's this hand animated, uh, it's sort of like, um, oh, Secret of Nim. Who was the uh, hmm. the animator? Uh, Secret um, of Nim, uh, Titan A. Don Bluth. Yeah, it's sort of this beautiful Don Bluth uh, kind of animation. Uh, it is a gorgeous game. And here, um, uh, the other thing I realized, too, is um, I have a bit of the old ADD. And um, I realized that ever since we got to the uh, voiceover uh, era of video games, mm -hmm. so from the P uh, once the PS2 era came along, I believe it was, um, was when you started getting fully voiced over games or partially voiced over um, or all of that. I realized this is the first game that is all text that I read every text box that popped open um, because I was so interested in these characters and the dialogue and all of that. I read every text box that opened during uh, the game where in a normal game, I'm playing the game for the game. I, I also... I uh, have been uh, tried to play Nino Kuni, got about 10 hours in, and it just wasn't for me. But, um, you know, uh, that is uh, half voiceover, half text. And the text boxes were coming up, and I was just XXXXXXX because I loved the the game mechanic. It's a Pokemon style JRPG, and I love the game mechanic. Um, but, you know, the story mm -hmm. was not for me. Um, so again, spirit fair, mm -hmm. I think it's $20 or $30, uh, depending on where you pick it up. Um, or if you have the Xbox pass, it's free. Um, definitely recommend it. Mm, yeah. That honestly, yeah, that honestly that just, wow, that sounds like amazing. And yeah. And I had never heard of it. So mm -hmm. yeah. My sister has the Xbox game pass and I have never heard yeah. of it either. But yeah, no, it, it sounds like honestly yeah, an awesome game. And I will definitely leave some stuff down below to like try to find it and stuff. But yeah, anyway, so. Also, here we have our, my co host Josh goes into a little bit more of an in depth interview with um, our special guest Ian and more on his channel. Um, let me just tell you real quick that we are showing again. Again, welcome to uh, Conversation with Two Things, a podcast where we talk about movies, comics, and everything in between. We won't go through logs, but. Um, so today we're going to be doing a one-on-one -on -one with Ian Martin, no relation. <laughs> um, he, he is um, the creator, I would say, of the YouTube channel Passion Nerd, where he dissects every episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Welcome to have you. Welcome and thank you for um, coming on our podcast. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So let's just start off. Um Let's just start off with just the basics. So you do a YouTube channel where you dissect every episode of Buffy. I do. And, and it, I, I want to ask, like, when you first 
started, you know, doing that particular niche? Like, um, did you expect it to ever go to the level of success that you have? Um, no, I mean, not particularly. And I think that's kind of one of the most important things about doing anything creative is, um, you know, sort of making things for your own happiness and making things for your own um, satisfaction uh, because often that, 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 that is a, a, an easy and solid way to avoid disappointment. Mm-hmm. Um, and in my case, what happened was I started doing a... Um, I, I, I'd been told by people for... I was in the, uh, the midst of a, a kind of sorting out and figuring out myself and uh, stayed a certain period of my life. And um, uh, one of the things that people had been telling me for a while, sorry, I just bumped my microphone. One of the things that people had been okay. telling me for a while at that point was um, to get into voiceover. But there are not a ton of you know if you want to be an actor it's a little bit more clear if you want to be a writer it's a little bit more clear if you want to be a voiceover actor it's a it's a little bit more vague as to how to get started and so one of the ways that i decided to to work on things and get better was to just start making things and um Mm -hmm. at the time i had just watched a show called buffy and um I had been trying to beg my friends to watch it and much to rather to no avail. And so I finally just sat down and wrote that little script uh, that turned into why you should watch Buffy. And in that video was um, I said that the first season of the show was a little bit rough, uh, but there were a couple of episodes you needed to watch and that I would make a little skip guide to get people through it. And um by the end of the first season, there were, I don't know, I don't know if it, w- it was 500 subscribers or what it was, um, but people wanted me to go on and do the next one. And I thought, well, in terms of the skip guide, um, to me, Buffy really gets good in season two, uh, mid-season mm-hmm. two. Uh, there are a couple of great moments uh, mm-hmm. before then, but uh, yeah, I could keep a skip guide going. And then... Um, by the time I got to the point where the skip guide was irrelevant, I kind of just organically knew that it was something I was going to try and finish um, doing an analysis of each episode and um, all of that. So no, it, it just, it, it grew slowly and completely organically. And, and I mean, you know, success is an utterly relative measure you know, um, I have, I think the channel is at 60, 65,000 subscribers, which is amazing. It's, mm-hmm. it's much farther than, um, it's much more than I ever thought I would, uh, get doing what I'm doing, but you know, there are, um, channels that I, uh, whose work I follow and that I admire and, and they have, they are just cracking a million for the first time, you know? Um, if you're just starting out, I, I remember the first a couple of weeks of dropping a video where I think it was season one and early season two, I would publish a video on YouTube and, you know, in the first week I'd get a hundred views and those hundred views are something to be proud of. Um, uh, mm-hmm. Because again, 
it's this big old sliding scale and it's relative purely to um, the time and the amount of work that you've put in. And some people, um, you know, some people get very lucky on their first couple of tries and other people, Norman mm -hmm. McLean wrote a river runs through it, which is one of my favorite books. And he didn't write that till he was 80, mm -hmm. never wrote a thing mm -hmm. beforehand. So um, really you just kind of have to do work that you enjoy doing for its own sake. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, it's, yeah, no, it's definitely been surprising. And I, as someone that has started a YouTube channel, um, like back in 2017, I can relate to it because it does, you do have to put in effort, you do have to put in time. And it is kind of a sliding scale, as you yeah. said. And yeah. Um, anyways, um, my next question. Um, so when it comes to the shows, like they're like 20 something minutes long and you have a ton of analysts. Well, they'd be, they've become 20 minutes long. Uh, the, when I first started, I'm in season five of Buffy, uh, two of Angel, and season one of Firefly, though. I'm looking forward to season two. And um, <laughs> the early on, I kind of had a rule. Um, I started in... The channel's uh, six-month anniversary, I think, was August. And when I started, there was kind of a rough rule of thumb that um, YouTube viewership fell off after three minutes. And so your ideal kind of target for a video length um, was around three minutes. And there weren't a ton of people doing analysis is that at that point it has exploded now but you had your red letter media and um uh, all of that there were sort of the who uh were a little more but but just sort of generally speaking i probably took that to heart too much and um mm -hmm. my early videos i i if they were more than three minutes i felt like i was making a mistake and then when I did Prophecy Girl, Prophecy Girl cracked the Prophecy Girl is the finale of uh, season one. That one cracked ten whole minutes, and I was panicked because I thought, "Oh, this is no one's going to sit here and listen to me talk for ten minutes." Um, and now, but now here we are, season five, two. Um, you know, the inflation has been real, uh, uh, mm -hmm. where. Yeah, the videos are uh, high teens, <laughs> early 20s uh, in terms of length. Generally, my rule now is just the video is as long, uh, and, and this has been bludgeoned into me by friends, the video is as long mm. as it needs to be. So um, yeah. you you write and you find the stuff that interests you to say, and, and um, um, if you... Uh, look to other so other um, things that are out there. You source appropriately that build on the ideas that you wanted to talk about. Um, and then at mm -hmm. some point you just kind of know you're done and you go. I, honestly, though, the one thing uh, setting in the three minute limit for myself was probably a good thing for the sake of my writing early on where I could, um, mm -hmm. you know, uh, for me, the hardest part of the process is writing and um, that, ceiling mm -hmm. early on kind of helped me focus on being a little more punchy, being a little more interesting, um, saying what there was to say, so forth. If I had written, if I had done 20 minutes in season one with, you know, and, and again, it's a sliding scale and I think my writing can get a lot better, but holy Toledo looking at the writing in the first season compared to the writing on the episode mm -hmm. guides. Now I think it, it is 
far better than it used to be. And, you know, that gives me yeah. great hope for season seven in the next episode guide. But if I had um, written a 20 minute episode guide uh, in season one, yeah, I, I don't know if it would have been, uh, would have been good. I think um, shorter was better early on shorter form. It makes sense. It makes sense. Cause essentially you're developing more as you're writing more deeper, more complex and more interesting like theological thoughts because yeah because i definitely have noticed especially as someone that has followed your channel for a while it definitely has increased and the quality has been immaculate my personal opinion and yeah you're 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 welcome yeah um but yeah um my next question you kind of actually answered my third question so i'm just going to skip over to number four um so when it comes to Buffy, you know, this is a show essentially about a cheerleader fighting vampires. And how has been, in doing the episode guide, how have you been able to, um, I guess what I'm trying to point out is try to, um, how has the show impacted you on a much more personal note? And we can go into Whedon and his whole impact, impact as well, but with particularly yeah. Buffy, how has that show impact you on, let's say, a moral level? Well, um, you know, uh, I I don't think it's hyperbolic to say that the show has changed my life. Um, mm-hmm. uh, early on, so I watched it in, again, I watched it in uh, my early 30s during a period of significant upheaval. And... Um, uh, really kind of questioning who was I? And, you know, uh, you have, when when you're a teenager, you kind of have some idea of, uh, and again, I'm going to make the 40-year-old guy mistake of speaking too broadly, but the, the uh, when I was a teenager, I'll say I was a teenager, I thought I had some idea of how life was going to be, how hard things were going to be, and who I was going to be in it. And then in my 20s, I started... Pain. Yeah, I'll How has Buffy influenced you on a personal slash moral level? You kind of talked earlier about you going, you um, you know, you watched the show back when you know you were going through a certain a people in your life. How has that influenced you in terms of the way you really just approach not only the, your show but also to life, maybe in general? Well, um, I would say that. Now, this sounds a little weird, but like the um, journey of identity, the, you know, sort of the um, the the understanding of who I was, who I am, and who I think I'm going to be, has has had several concise ages and steps along the way. Um, uh, you know, as a teenager, I thought I had some sense of who I was, who I was growing into and who I would be after high school or college. And then as a 20 year old, you know, you start facing the reality of independence and paying rent and paying bills. And uh, typically you, they, you know, you don't get hired as into your favorite position. You have to grind and start at the bottom and uh, do work sort of menial, um, jobs to start not everyone uh, some people get lucky um some people things go differently but that's a bit of a wake-up process and you sort of reevaluate okay 
I thought I would arrive at this point, but uh, it's going to take it a little time. Then I'll arrive. And then in my 30s, um, you know, my late 20s were going a particular direction that I thought um, I knew what it was, uh, who I was going to marry, where I was going to end up living, what I was going to be doing. And then that all fell to pieces. And early 30s, I had a, a bit of an identity crisis where I kind of went, um, you know, and then at that point, the older you get, the more mm-hmm. uh, certain doors are closing. Now, I, I mentioned earlier that Norman McLean wrote A River Runs Through It in his 80s. And, and uh, so there's always possibilities. There's always chances. But, uh, you know, at some point, you're no longer going to be a point guard for the Chicago Bulls. I was no going to be no longer going to be a pitcher for uh, the Cubs. You know, um, being good, be, having mastery of anything requires lots and lots and lots of time. And at a certain point, you're just not going to, you know, your possibilities start to slim down a little bit. And that I realized that in my early 30s and kind of went, well, now what? Who am I? What, do, what am I doing? And so forth. And that was when I watched Buffy for the first time. Was in the midst of that, uh, those questions of identity that that um, that I was grappling with, and it is the perfect show to um, for that particular situation. I mean, Buffy is um, about adolescence. Adolescence is, you know, an identity firestorm. And um, and then the last two seasons are are sort of their take on, um, you know, being an adult. But but so mm-hmm. it was really kind of perfect. And so uh, and and I would say uh, not just through the channel and the fact that I do what I do full time now and talk about media and um, these kinds of things, but just personally, the show changed my life um, where. I would say now that I'm 40, I've kind of come to accept that you you never arrive. You know, they, they the, the, um, the, the, there's a, you, it's hard to shed the fallacy um, that once I get to do this, then I'll be done. Once I'll be a director, once I'm a writer, once I've written a book, once I do this thing, then, then, then I'm, an adult then i am whatever and none of that is true um you're you're just where you are in the moment we mentioned the sliding scale of what success is i mean that just applies to being a person and um uh, in the flow of any particular person's lifetime you are where you are at the time and you can have dream you should have goals about the future but goals are distinct from expectations but um you know the there just is never an arrival point um i don't think anymore mm-hmm. and um part of me making peace with that um and just sort of taking things day by day and doing what i do now was through grappling with the questions of identity that the show um brings up on a regular basis so mm-hmm. i mean that's that's a very roundabout uh way of answering your question which is to say um, a lot and in every way uh, has the show affected me in my life. Yeah. And I, yeah, I, 
I mean, you definitely answered it very well and poignantly, and it's even making me think about, you mm -hmm. know, because I'm, I'm 21 for context. And, you know, I'm at a point right now in my life where, you know, I'm, you know, I want to be a director slash screenwriter. And but yet I also know that it's going to take a lot of work. And, you know, I'm at a point right now where youth is kind of, you know, my main driving force, but I'm at the same time, you know, I have been thinking about, you know, the future and how I want to pursue it in my life. And sometimes in my life, you know, I don't want to be that, you know, glamorous thing, but yet sure. I can accept that. Yeah. I can accept that, so to speak. But yeah, I, you know, watching your videos, yeah, just make me think about Buffy even more. And I, okay. I'll give you a little story for context um, of how I got introduced to Buffy. Um, so my friend Miranda, which if you know Firefly, um, or Serenity is a certain place actually. In, yeah. In Serenity, um, yeah. <laughs> which is very interesting. And yeah. Um, she introduced me to the show when I was 10. Like, she brought out these two VHSs and was like, hey, we're going to watch this show together. And I remember watching, like, the first episode, um, the first episode, the first episode, um, Welcome to the Hellmouth and The Harvest. And I remember just being blown away by it. And then ever since then, I've been, I, you know, looked through old VHS tapes to, like directly like watching on cable to finally like binging the rest of that and angel on netflix when netflix used to have it and me just falling in love with the show the universe the characters and you know it was definitely also during my teenage years yeah yeah which is the perfect so, time yeah but it, yeah which is the perfect time to, you know watch the show and I definitely will say Whedon and the various writers, directors, and the whole amount of people involved with the show um, have definitely created something that I think actually still stands the test of time, you know? It's yeah, everything dates. Things, I but... mean, everything begins to date. The storytelling structure in uh, It's a Wonderful Life dates. I mentioned uh, in the main cast that we watched Rebel Without a Cause. I feel like that has... Um, has dated everything starts to become of an era or of a of a time and place but one of the things about being a show that steeps itself in theme the way um buffy does which only i can really only think of um shows in the science fiction genre that also do that star trek is very steeped in theme um twilight zone is often steeped mm -hmm. in theme uh, one of the things that, that results when you do that is those themes persist. Those themes are uh, about what it is to be human and and all of that are rel as relevant uh, today as they were in 1997 as they were in 1967. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that uh, let alone the questions of quality and writing and acting and dialogue and all of that, which is a different conversation. But I, I think that one of the things that really aids in timelessness is um, mm -hmm. is is that kind of writing that 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 um, leads with theme. You know, the the example I always think of in Star Trek: The Original Series is they pick up two aliens. Uh, who have been uh, fighting each other, and one of them is chasing the other one, and they they have one half of their face is black, and the other half of their face is white. I mean, it's the notorious mm. um, 
Star Trek alien thing where they look like humans except for one particular detail. And during the entire yeah. episode, um, the crew doesn't understand why one guy hates the other guy so much and why um, when they're, they're so much the same. And, and at the climax of the episode, uh, the, the, the persecutor says, you can't tell the difference between us? I'm uh, completely different than his filthy nature. He's black on the right side and I'm white on the right side. And that's the nature of their, now it's heavy handed and it's on the nose. It was the 1960s, but, um, Mm -hmm. but you know, that idea of Mm -hmm. difference in ethnicity and difference in race and all of that is just as relevant today as it was then. And so, you know, uh, I remember seeing that original series episode when I was, eight or nine years old and it, it hit me. Um, what an interesting commentary that was. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I think, I think that's a, you mentioned just it's timelessness. I think that that's a very, um, relevant aspect Mm -hmm. above and beyond simple quality. There's lots of terrific high quality, Mm -hmm. um, shows that people just stop watching uh, but uh, yeah, well, um, I, I'm thinking '80s like um, Chicago Hope. Uh, yeah, people pe- people don't go back oh, and watch that, ER, that, as far as I'm aware. <laughs> um, you know, and I think part of the reason is uh, part of the things that 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 keeps things in uh, kindling in the fandom or keeps things in the zeitgeist. Um, are are when you grapple with theme is all I'm saying. Yes, and I, yeah, and Buffy, and even including like Angel and Angel and even to Firefly, for example, always have those particular themes of you know what does it mean to be human, and moral nature being right yeah. or wrong, the moral grayness of it, and it's it's definitely something that I just. I, I think your work on the channel has definitely, you know, taken a look at, you know, besides it being, you know, about a girl who, you know, got essentially the horror movie subversion of kicking of um the monster of the monster um killing the blonde girl. But yeah, that, I mean I would say that's the, the chocolate around the pill. You know, that's the um mm-hmm. um a balance with theme is an also an important thing uh when theme is too heavy-handed those are the shows that end with uh and here's the lessons i learned today we're all the same um uh you know uh, there's a there's a hierarchy of i think i would think there's a hierarchy of priority when it comes to writing anything i have one for when i write the episode guides and for me the number one is uh to be entertaining you know, because whatever um, mm-hmm. what I can would feel like are revolutionary thoughts or interesting ideas or great things that I have to say aren't worth anything if I don't create something that um, values the listener's time um, and and captivates their interest. And mm-hmm. so uh, um, that's something that Buffy does incredibly well. And I, you know... Um, leads with entertainment first uh, in whatever that hierarchy was for them. 
Definitely. Um, I have to ask you, have you been ever um, contacted by any of the previous writing staff for Buffy, uh, um, whether it be like Marty Knox or something? Yeah. Or I've, anyone that really had worked on the show to like, they saw your had, channel. I've had interactions like, oh, with a number of the people on the Mutant Enemy uh, writing team and um, a handful of the actors, specifically on Firefly. Um, but I mean, I've, I've also mm. attended different um comic cons and i was the mc for uh weedon con one year and so um interviewed sean marr on stage and um and all of that but i for me um i actually don't seek that out and and uh often try and avoid it um uh you know when i was growing up uh he's kind of the go-to for anyone who does uh YouTube analysis and conversation. But when I was growing up, I would read Roger Ebert's uh, reviews. I watched his television show. I read his um, blog. And the thing about interesting criticism or, or good writing in criticism is that I would read his stuff even if I had no plans to see the movie because Roger always... Um, mm-hmm had a way of looking at a piece of media that was as interesting or sometimes more often than the media itself. Um, But I remember seeing an interview with him uh, as the interviewer where he interviewed Tom Hanks and um, the, the interview started and uh, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not sure what, uh, Ebert's experience was with interviewing at that point, but Tom uh, Tom Hanks opened by giving him crap lightly for his review of Splash, and it flustered Roger. I could tell. Uh, I I wish I could find the clip because it's something that has always uh, come to mind whenever I do have interactions with the people who created the content, but. Um, uh, you know, Tom Hanks was just being jovial and and funny, but Roger uh, felt kind of put on the spot. And that, that in my mind, kind of, when you're doing sort of analysis and criticism, um, your target audience is not the people who made the show. Your, your target audience is, are the fans. It's the community that followed the show. It's, um, uh, you know, people who follow you, those are the people that you're writing the content for. And I would go even further than say that you mostly you want to write for yourself to, to, to write things that you find interesting as, as the highest priority, because your reaction is the only one you can control. But when I publish a video, I don't tag Joss. I don't tag, um, because they, they, because they know what it is. They made the thing. They know the answers, you know, and, and what I thought of, the episode she from angel season one or where the wild things are, any of that is like, it just doesn't, it doesn't and shouldn't matter to them because they're not who the content is aimed for. And the couple of times that I've um, occasionally when I have a question about, you know, um, there's a, there's a convention on the, in the show where at the end of a scene, a, a character will say one thing, and then that line informs the cut to the next scene. So um, 
uh, Spike, mm-hmm. uh, if Empire's in jail and says, uh, I, I'm going to kill her, I don't care how smart she is. Cut to a shot of Buffy uh, with a pen that's leaked all over her, and she says, oh, stupid pen. And and I they use that technique a lot, so you don't have to go to... Um, it's expeditious because you don't have to go to a wide shot and then a medium shot and then a close up because the the you don't have to orient the audience every single time. It's a very quick transition to the next scene. But I didn't know what the name of it was. I, I was writing this um, episode guide. I think it was for family uh, the in Buffy season five. And um, I was highlighting the writing technique that they use repeatedly. And I thought maybe there was a name for it. So I tweeted at David Fury. Um, is there a special name for this? And he actually he replied and uh, said they called it a transition. But, um, you know, I just never I'm I'm I write about these things because I'm also a fan. And. I realize that mm-hmm. there is a bit of there will is and always will be a bit of fan worship, fan admiration, and all of that within me, um, and that should not influence how I write about an episode that I found poor. Uh, but if I knew that the writers or the directors or the the actors or the crew had eyes on and were watching that video and whatever i might be tempted to soften my language um or to uh to to not go not not use my voice not use the voice that i'm comfortable with and confident with and so forth because i didn't want to hurt feelings of these people that i admire and so i just don't do that i um do i you know um when they have watched, when they have interacted, I'm incredibly grateful. Uh, it means a ton to me, but it's definitely not something that I seek out because I want to say what I have to say about the show and and to share it with um, the audience uh, of people who are interested in it the way that, uh, that I am. And for the people that aren't, you know, more power to them. They don't have to watch. There's a lot of content out there um, to suit, you know, different tastes. Yeah. Um, yeah, I it seems like you're a very impartial, you know, to you know, how Donnie or how the creators of the show, you know, if they were able to look at it impact. No, it's okay. Um sorry, I'm just trying to find the right words for this. because um, I I feel like you've had a very elegant elegant statement and I and I was like, Oh wow, okay. Yeah. Cause I was just what was going through my head when I asked that question was I was wondering like what it like I was just curious, like if like any of the writers or not that I'm asked, not that I'm like if you like actively speak it. I'm just like wondering, like what if like uh, David Fury like saw a video of like okay, that actually made a good point. I imagine there's probably a lot. I of mean, that videos on the has internet. happened. There are writers that have experience. shared my content on their Twitter, their social media, uh, and so forth. But again, it's just something that I I'm grateful for, especially because I feel like they're in a position of having a very wide audience. Um, we talked about the sliding scale of success before, um, and I'm not. And so um, that they would see fit to to open that up to me uh, is very kind. Um, so, uh, but again, it's just something that I don't look for. I'm also, but I mean, this, the, the same kind of thing applies to 
uh, your audience. When you develop a, an audience, when you develop a community of people that follow you, mm -hmm. um, and this did happen to me where I started hearing the different voices of familiar people in the community who comment on every video, who say different things, who uh, yeah, maybe are a little contrarian, uh, all of that. I would be writing my script and have a feeling or an opinion or a take on a particular scene and hear the voice of that person in my head. And there was a period maybe in my season, late season three, early season four videos, where I feel like I started to soften my own writing uh, because I was very familiar with uh, the community of people that were following me. And that's a huge mistake. That's just something that um, I needed to step back from. And that was when I, I really started to think about, okay, well, who is my target audience? And if I am my own target audience, then that is a very repeatable um you know, stamp and stamp and and put it out there kind of approach to creating stuff, and then you know let the chips fall where they may. That doesn't mean that I'm not open to criticism or feedback. Um, I definitely am, and I've definitely gotten lots of things wrong uh, at different points, or my takes have changed uh, over the course of the um, as the episode guide has aged. But in terms of the the process of creation, it's it's a very, you know, I'm a, a high anxiety, anxious person, and it's a very fragile space to be able to sit down and write and create a thing and record it and edit it and then put it out there for public consumption. It's a, any, anyone who makes stuff and publishes things or puts things out there uh, to scrutiny, I think that's a very brave act and um some people are in i have friends who have youtube channels and they are impervious they are they have what they have they say what they have to say and they put it out there and and uh, if they if someone doesn't like it then fine go away um, and i'm just not that guy i'm just not that person and i i can be prone to um creative inertia. And so over the course of doing this, I've just developed my own um, coping techniques for making sure that I get up and sit down and write the next piece and, and keep going. Um, and, and uh, to some degree that has involved limiting scope either from, from, you know, the audience itself or, or, or limited, limiting influence either from the audience itself or from, you know, as you said, the um, um, the creators on high, for lack of a better term. The mm -hmm. Yeah, I yeah I never yeah it's interesting like you yeah I'm 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 yeah no just hearing that just makes me think about you know how you process and how you write stuff, but also try to balance out the influence between. Again, the sliding scale between, you know, trying to listen to yourself, but also, you know, trying to keep the outside world from containing, um, from coming into the writing and stuff. And, you know, it's definitely something interesting. No. Well, and I never had writers, a desire to struggle with that. Um, be public. Uh, I never, 
the very private person. And I know that my writing uh, may seem otherwise, but every story that I've Mm -hmm. shared is um, written to contain, uh, you know, there's to be a good story uh, is always my goal. Uh, Whether that has a climax or um, a a punchline or a theme or any of that, the, 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 the bits of my personal life or me that I've shared um, at various times, I've done so with edit, edited intent where I thought I was delivering something of value and I was clear on what that value was. Beyond that, I do not uh, put myself out there on social media or Instagram or Twitter extensively. Um, I've made runs at it at different times. I mean, there is the, there's a business aspect to doing what I do where you know, you want to um, grow the business and and um, uh, create something that's viable and so that you can eat and have health insurance and, and do all of the things. But um, I've never had much success in sharing mm-hmm. myself uh, unless it was, again, a, a highly edited, targeted piece of writing that, that I was clear on my intentions for sharing it. So, um, you know, the, the, and again, that's different between, I, I'm not interested in being a personality. Um, I'm not, or, or, or an influencer or any of that. I'm interested in the work that I do. And I'm grateful that there are people who are interested in that as well. Beyond that, I find, um, the other aspects of doing this, um, challenging at times because I'm what um, what you might call an outgoing introvert where, um, you know, uh, uh, a, being a public in any way is a um, bit of a challenge for me is all I'm saying. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think there's a lot of those that, yeah, I, and that struggle with that outgoing personality and, yeah, it's definitely an interesting bit about just trying to balance out that business side, but yeah. also trying to not reveal too much of yourself, so to speak. So, to speak. so yeah. Okay. Anyways, one of the two questions I have, and I'm going to combine this into basically one question. So, we didn't, along with Buffy, Angel, Firefly, et cetera, and how you like huge to impact. you, has had an impact on pop culture and pop, and pop culture a huge impact. Um, I mean, so much so that like every other movie after Avengers started becoming quippy and stuff. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Um, yeah. And it's interesting on how that, uh, on how that has happened, but it's how, with the controversy going on with the current controversy mm-hmm. right now, going on with Justice League, which, oh boy, that's a mess. That, that is a literal mess. And, and personally, for me, I think it was. Yeah, that movie was. It real quick. I think it, it was like a train wreck on I think that multiple occasions. Is, that kind of comes back to Warner more than anyone who was involved in it, I would think. Yeah. That being said, um, I do wonder, especially with its impact on pop culture, how 
Mm -hmm. it will age in the next couple of years because i've already because i've been following medium for a very long time like i've been following it since i was 10 and when avengers came out it changed the game it changed the game for just everything and i'm wondering how you know this controversy depending on how it goes out because i honestly i think so um i don't know if this is going to include if i might actually come to that but I have a whole alimony theory on like how Whedon got involved with that project, <laughs> which, um, cause I don't know if he knows or not, but he was actually getting divorced around the same time that, you know, he was being around the same time that the project was happening. And I think he had to do it because of alimony. Now keep in mind, this also comes from, um, from basically two and a half men and his current storyline with Alan, where he basically has to give alimony checks. I, well, it's okay. <laughs> sorry, this is, this is me rambling on by the way. Yeah, no, and also just me just laughing because it's just like, oh, so this is how he got involved with the movie. <laughs> I mean, I have actually, in fact, I kind of actually okay. am a little, yeah, no, it's it, it's all like, anyways, anyways, back on back on track. I'm just wondering how how Whedon's impact on pop culture will age because with the controversy surrounding it, I'm already like hearing like damn Whedon and stuff and. I know we're kind of past that point where Whedon has been involved with everything, but it's at the same time, though, I'm very much curious about how, you know, stuff like Buffy and stuff like Angel and stuff like Firefly will contribute to, will impact the public masses, because those have had very interesting impacts on really everything from, you know, the way, you know, from the LGBTQ community to, um, to just how um, the other characters are written, because to be honest, Buffy was one of the first characters, in my personal opinion. And keep in mind, I love Princess Leia, I love Sarah Connor, and I love love Ripley. But she was the first character that actually felt real to me. The first female character that actually felt like a three dimensional, three dimensional character, say the least. And I'm wondering how Whedon's impact, good or bad, would have you, or how this. Well, I'm not. Well, outside the scope of the thoughts, stuff though. that I write about, when whether that's um, contemporary media or um, you know, you talk about the controversies, I tend to, um, I also tend to avoid following um, celebrities and people that I that make stuff I enjoy um, because I have had enough experiences with loving things made by and again i'm not applying this to anyone in particular i'm just saying that i've had enough experiences with loving media made by uh questionable to abhorrent people somewhere on the spectrum and um, i talked about this uh in the podcast with jack sort of i think that um you know it's important not to deify any individual creator period uh, love the work, love the art, not the artist. Um, uh, and there are exceptions to that. There are exceptions to every uh, uh, rule. But, you know, I, 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 I'm always of the opinion that once a piece of art is live and public and um, in the zeitgeist, it no longer belongs to the artists themselves. It belongs to us. And we say what it means and what it is. And, and that's why things like the... That's why Star Wars sort of died mm -hmm. for me. It died uh, when the special editions started releasing. Um, and then, you know, the prequels salted the earth. So I could not have been less interested in um, 
the latest Star Wars movies and the controversy in, involved in that. But um, you know, so so that's those that's kind of my feelings about um, Whedon as an individual and how that affects my perceptions of the shows. There are lots of reasons to, uh, you know, we're in an incredibly political time period. Um, and I, I, and, and as someone who does what I do, I'm very subject to, you know, all the opinions that exist ever, uh, on Buffy and Angel. Now, you know, if you think an episode is self-evidently terrible, I guarantee there are people out there that love that episode. Um, there, uh, you know, that season of the show that you hate, I guarantee there's a big group of people that love that mm -hmm. season. Um, and there's a whole group of people that wanted to hold Buffy the whole, the show up as, um, this deeply feminist pro progressive, um, show. And it was for its time. Um, and as we've sort of, as things have sort of moved along and that, that sliding scale of progressivism has moved, we've started to see, oh, that didn't age well, or that dated, or that was poor. But does that mean that Buffy is less of a piece of entertainment, less of a quality piece of drama? Uh, no, it doesn't. It just means that it's, you know, not the Rosetta Stone of progressivism. Um, and uh, that to me is only ma makes the show less than if you were holding it up as something that it wasn't. Um, so that's sort of like, again, everything dates, everything ages, everything, because um, uh, uh, society is in flux. Uh, society is constantly moving and changing itself. And the, the piece of art is static once it's, once it's done. Um, so the, I, I think that, uh, but the Buffy's had an interesting run because, um, it, uh, it, it had an audience when it aired and there was some in syndication, but as I understand it, it has, um, exploded in following due to streaming services like Netflix and, um, Amazon prime and so forth. So it has, and then Whedon himself, uh, experienced a bit of a renaissance with, um, when Firefly uh, was syndicated or hit streaming services and, and got a huge afterlife. And then um, uh, he got Avengers and so forth. Um, but, you know, things will move on. Um, artistic uh, uh, tastes will change, uh, will adjust. Very few things are timeless. Very few things are um, a Wizard of Oz or, um, you know, I, I, I even think It's a Wonderful Life feels um, incredibly of the time. The first hour, nothing happens. It's all uh, character flavor. It's like the whole chapter of Moby Dick that's about whales and has nothing to do with the plot. Um, there are still beautiful things in It's a Wonderful Life. There are still beautiful things to take away from it. Um, but... Um, you know, I, I, I think if that movie were made today and put into theaters, uh, it would bomb again. Uh, if I remember correctly, it bombed at the time and then experienced uh, a resurgence uh, later mm -hmm. on. So, um, you know, I love the MCU and I think that that Whedon's flavor is all over it. 
Um, but I think that that there will eventually, especially with however the movie industry resolves itself after hopefully life starts to return to pre-pandemic days, um, it's not going to work. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm sorry if I... <laughs> Yeah, I know. I know. I know. I was just like, I hope so as well. I, yeah, I, no, I, understand. I, I sorry, my, but I mean, my that's sort of the thing is, um, like, uh, hello, darkness, my old friend. Sort we were of talking place. about identity earlier. The, the, the greatest constant is change. Um, so I, I mean, I love his work and I think that, that, uh, and I, I try not to know very much about him as I do, um, many of the people I love or many of the people who make stuff that I love, uh, rather. Um, uh, so I, I, I'm not sure if that answers your question. That it, 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 it does. And yeah. I'm just thinking of the quote, the greatest constant is change. You know, things change, art changes, art changes as we go older. I mean, some of the stuff that I liked as a kid, I, and keep my mind, I'm still very young, I don't, I'm like, what the hell? But then also I'm just, you know, there, there's a lot of mediums that have changed yeah. and I just, and there's stuff that ages very well. Like for example, and this is not even Buffy, but Avatar, for example, I just rewatched the show this yes. summer and it is, I think the best kids, kids animated cartoon of all time. Yeah. And it's just, and that show. Yeah. And that along with like Buffy is like one of my favorite shows of all time, along with other shows, but, you know, things change and things change. And I definitely, you know, I've experienced that, you know, with my taste, but then also I'm, I mean, there's people I followed, um, one of who, which um, kind of was turned out to be an asshole. And I, I won't say his name, but let's just say he's related to the guy who gotcha. um, created, who directed Animal House and uh, American Werewolf, Werewolf in London. Yeah, so that, that's all I'll say. But yeah, no, it's things change, and I think the greatest content is change, and that's something I, you know, I, I just you. I think about that, and I think about that, and you are also a very elegant wordsmith, I might say. Yeah, and it's just yeah, no, and you know, whatever happens with Whedon, you know, you know, we still have the we still have, you know, the thing we made, and as you said beforehand, you know, once that thing goes out into the world, it becomes the fans. It becomes what they interpret, what they interpret, what they think about it, and it's something that I think applies to all art, um, all art, including um, certain other people's art. I won't say your name, but um, J.K. Rowling um, kind of applies to that. But yeah, no, it's just. It was something when the controversy started was something I was thinking about. And I definitely have changed my tune on Whedon, Whedon personally. Like sure. I'm not like as much as I do admire his work. I will admit though, he's a bit of a cranky bastard. That's, 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 that's what I've kind of interpreted, especially and for some of it for justifiable reasons. Like as a writer, as a writer for myself, when I learned about the original history of Buffy, um, especially the movie, I, I'm not going to lie, it really put me off from watching the movie yeah, for years. Yeah. It wasn't until like, a friend of mine actually sat me down and watched it and be like, okay, this is fine, but still. Yeah. And it's it's definitely something, and again, I go back to your quote, and, you know, things change, and that's kind of how I've been approaching just the weekly controversy and stuff, but yeah, no, it's, it's something I'm just 
you know, it's something I'm just still thinking about because it's just, you know, things change and, you know, I, but yeah, no, I, yeah. anyway, um, so I think we're going to end, end it off here. That's all the questions I really have. And I just really, and I just want to, again, say thank you for, you know, um, coming on to the, coming sure. on, like, I, this is again our first guest. We've been, keep in mind, we're only like six episodes into this podcast and it's we've just been doing like every saturday and just casually you know i'm still in college um jamie works on the side and you know having someone like you who is you know i would consider a big huge influence i'm again not like an influencer sort of way but just like you have 65 million subscribers and it's like and you also cover like one of my favorite shows of all time and so much so that I, I'm looking at, and okay. I got this this summer, I'm looking at a DVD copy of the first season right now. I'll send you a picture later, but yeah, no, it is a DVD copy, a DVD copy of the first yeah, season. Yeah, I own uh, maybe I, six di- different versions like of uh, Buffy, you know, different digital services <laughs> and the, the, the thing itself. So I completely understand, of course. Yeah. But yeah, uh, but again, just thank you. Just, you know, I know you're a very busy person yeah. with the channel and stuff. And, you know, just coming on. Oh, it's my, pl- and, my pleasure. You know, again, thanks. I really, and I do appreciate you coming on. And, you know, hopefully, yeah. Yeah, and, um, you know. Um, <laughs> I appreciate you know, it. We, you know, this isn't like a one-time deal. Like, we, I'm, you know, you're always welcome to come back. You know, there's always an open door. Hello, and that is it for the end of our episode. Please follow our special guest Ian at, on Twitter at Ian Itram and on YouTube at Passion of the Nerd. And please follow our social media um, on Facebook and Instagram. We're at Conversation with Two Geeks. Um, on Twitter, we're at Combo with Two Geeks. And our email is Conversation with Two Geeks at gmail.com. Thanks, and see you guys next week.